Well, first, I want to thank you for praying for my family over this past month plus. We have been uh, out of pocket a whole lot, an interesting season for us. I I got COVID for a couple weeks. Uh, Chelsea's father disappeared, uh, was then found dead. Uh, We then decided to take a vacation for a couple weeks. We went to see friends and family and uh, and then we bookended it with some COVID for everybody else that wasn't me. Uh, so really exciting. Um, we finished up the memorial yesterday. We, we drove uh, four, five hours-ish uh, to Clarksburg, West Virginia, uh, did the memorial, and then came home. Actually, that was the kids and I. I had them this week solo as Chelsea went up to spend time with their family, and we were generous enough to let her come back here with us. Um, and so uh, I just want to extend my thanks to you for your understanding and, and your patience. Uh, I'm really thankful for Ben Bullard and for uh, Dan uh, as they've filled this pulpit. Uh, in fact, Dan was supposed to fill the pulpit again today uh, so that I could rest after our adventures yesterday and my uh, sort of corralling of the children this week. Uh, however, uh, he is now sick with what I think is probably COVID. I'm not sure. Uh, at any rate, uh, I have prepared Uh, an old sermon, and tried to make it new for you again um, this morning. And so uh, I want to radically reduce all of your expectations. That way you'll think, oh, I actually wasn't so bad. Uh, And with that rousing introduction, uh, let's turn our attention to, to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. Where was God? How could God let something like this happen? Paul asked the question before, right or wrong. And I think what we find here in John chapter 11 is a text that helps us to see how God ultimately addresses suffering, and the problem of evil. You see, he swallows up evil and suffering with glory. That's sort of the main theme that we are going to talk about today, but I don't want you to miss the main idea of the text. I believe I got it into your insert this morning. It's this, and it comes from verse 25. We must walk away from the text contemplating this truth that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. And my exhortation to you is to believe this. Believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. And and if you believe this, some corollary things will happen in your life when you come unto suffering. You will be able to trust God's love when it's hard. You'll know in the midst of loss that Jesus cares. And even when things seem to be out of control in your life, you will remember that God holds the whole world in his hands. And you will wait patiently for death's defeat, knowing that the Lord Jesus holds the keys to death and Hades. All of this is a consequence of your response to this good news, that Jesus Christ was crucified for the sins 
of all who will believe in him, turning from their sins, and that he didn't stay dead, but is risen, ruling, and one day will return to make all things new. So with that set up, let's pray, and then we will begin to walk through the text together this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and for your word that brings life. We confess that we often fail to trust you when things don't go our way. We pray that as we see Jesus love his friends in surprising ways, and reveal who he is in this passage, that that we would behold his face and recognize all of our questioning of you is out of place. Because when we behold your glory in the face of Christ, we realize that you are good, that you are God. And that whatever you ordain is right. When we come to know you and trust you fully, recognize we don't need answers to questions of suffering. No, what we need is your presence. Through all of this life and into eternity. Indeed, Father, Jesus is enough. He's enough yesterday, today, and forever. So we pray that you press this truth down into our bones this morning. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Look with me at verse 1 of John chapter 11. Now a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. And so the sisters sent to Jesus saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Therefore, when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, Jesus said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go 
to wake him up. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. Jesus, immediately in this passage, begins challenging idols. And I actually love how Thomas responds to Jesus' address of his idol of safety. You'll notice when when Jesus speaks of going back into Judea, the disciples object. Verse 8, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Like, did you forget back in chapter 10 you said, I and the Father are one? And then they decided in verse 31 that they were going to pick up stones and stone you. And so we are sort of wanted men in that particular area. And if we go back into the hot zone, the odds are it's not going to go great for us. Jesus is undeterred, though. He is going to go to Lazarus, who's already dead. You do have to love how Jesus speaks in metaphor, and it goes completely over their heads. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, and they're like, hey, if he's sleeping, that's a really good thing. Like, if he's sick, if he's fever, whatever, he's sleeping, he's going to get better. That's great, Jesus. And Jesus is like, no, you know, you big dummies. He's dead. And then you have to, they have to be going, well, why are we going then? But Jesus says, we're going to go. And Thomas, who gets a bad rap, right? What do we call him? Doubting Thomas. Look at how Thomas responds. Let us also go along that we may die with him. Now, he could be saying, let us go so that we can die with Lazarus. Or what I think he's saying, let's go so that we can die with Jesus. If Jesus is to be stoned to death, if Jesus is to be persecuted, we're with him. Our life is his life. We've thrown in our lot with this one who calls himself the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Thomas seems ready to carry his cross. I think this is a good reminder that sometimes we sort of flatten biblical characters. We don't allow them to be as textured as they really are. Now it's just doubting Thomas, and that's Peter the denier, and all the disciples deserted Jesus. Really, they're, they're people like you and me. And I think if we're honest and we cataloged our own spiritual lives, many of us could go by the moniker doubting, denying, or deserting. One of the things I love about Jesus is that he only calls us one thing, beloved, beloved. Jesus loves his people. And his people are willing to follow him to the death with crosses on our backs. Thomas is ready to follow Jesus anywhere 
even though Jesus' instructions challenge that idol of safety. I mean, how many of us automatically, if something seems dangerous, rule it out of bounds? I can't do that. It's not safe. But really, the posture ought to be, I will do whatever my king requires. That's Thomas's posture. Jesus also challenges the idol of health. You'll notice the whole issue resolves around something that is a bit surprising in the first six or seven verses. We read that Jesus loves someone for the first time in John's gospel. Really interesting. I also read God loves the world, other people who love other people. But here in chapter 11, for the first time, we're told that Jesus loves someone. And the one whom he loves is Lazarus, the brother of Mary and of Martha. John gives us that note in verse 2 that Mary anointed Jesus' feet. He hasn't told that story yet. It happens in chapter 12. And so he wants us to recognize that Jesus is connected with this family. Lazarus is someone that Jesus loves like you would love a family member. And he's sick. And then we read verse, verses 5 and 6. This is just really surprising. Look again, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, therefore, and what you and I expect to read, knowing Jesus, Jesus healed with a word from a distance. He said, Lazarus, go. Lazarus is well. It's not what happens. So, but maybe we think, well, Jesus will, will go himself personally to Lazarus. As he does with Jairus' daughter. Remember, he takes the little girl by the hand and says, get up. You know, wake up. And she, she gets up. That's not what Jesus does either. Maybe even he could just teleport to Lazarus' bedside. That's not what he does. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Notice the, the connection here. Jesus loves Martha and Mary and Lazarus. So he does nothing. He lets Lazarus die. That's interesting, isn't it? Some of us are going, wait, wait, wait a minute. How, Jesus, how is that loving? I mean, the loving thing would, to do would be go and, and make Lazarus well, right? Wrong. You see, love gives us what is ultimately for our good and God's glory. And what's Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and the disciples, and the church, thousands of years later, most need is a revelation of the glory of God. Look at verse 4. Why is this so? It does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. God gives us 
what we most need, even if we don't understand it, even if we don't want it, even if it's really hard, whatever happens to the Christian happens for the Christian as we are conformed more and more to the image of Christ. This is why James tells us to consider it pure joy when we encounter trials of various kinds because God is making us complete. He's making us mature in Christ. He's making us holy as he is holy. He's training our hearts to not love the temporary things of this world or our circumstances, but to love him above all else, to trust him above all else. Paul Paul documents this for us in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28. You guys probably know this one, right? He says, we know that for those who love God, those who are Christians, those who love God, all things work together for good. All things work together for good for those called according to his purpose. Not some of the things in your life work together according to God's purpose. Not many of the things, but but all things work together for good. For the good of those who are called according to his, that's God's, purpose. God uses suffering and trials and difficulties for your good and his glory. Paul also makes note of this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Read verses 16 through 18 and then verses 6 and 7 of chapter 5. I'm going to smush them all together there. This is what he says. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Later on in 5.7, Paul says that we don't lose courage because we walk by faith, not by sight. We trust the Lord. Paul says, your glory, the glory that your suffering produces, ultimately is going to far outweigh the difficulties of this life. All that you endure will be as a feather in comparison to the anvil of glory, the other side of the grave. Paul doesn't write this, you know, tritely as someone who is unacquainted with suffering. He writes it as one who suffered himself. Remember, Paul was shipwrecked, stoned, beaten, remember, lashed. He was even given a thorn in his flesh that he begged God to take away. And the Lord said, no. Why? My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Paul knows what it is to suffer. And yet he tells us that we can trust God. We can walk by faith in God even when we can't see all the reasons for our suffering. It's similar uh, to monsters in the dark. If you've had children, 
maybe you've had the experience. Uh, the young son or daughter comes downstairs and says, Daddy, there are monsters in my room. And you say, no, they're not. And they say, no, no, I can't go back in there. There, there are monsters in there. Maybe you go, major pain. You guys haven't seen this movie, but I can't not think of it. Uh, where a kid says there's monsters in the room. He's a, a major in the army, and he goes in, and he pulls his gun out, and he, he shoots a, a few rounds into the closet. And he says, well, if he's in there, he ain't happy. And the kid's good. He goes to sleep. And maybe you could go that route, I suppose. But I think what happens in most cases is the parent says to the child, after maybe tries to explain, all right, monsters aren't real, there's not under the sea, look, not under the bed, not in the closet, and then leave the kid in the room, and then five minutes later, monsters in my room. And you know what, what resolves that issue, is you say, you know what, I know you're, you're afraid of the dark, and you're afraid of these monsters, but how about I hold your hand, and we go into the room together. It's at that point the child's willing to, to enter the room. See, what, what the child doesn't need are all the logical answers or reasons why the, there are no monsters in the room. What the child needs is the presence of his trusted father. See, friends, likewise, what we need most not the answers to all of our questions when things go sideways, when trials come, when sorrows like sea billows roll. Now, what we need is the presence of God. We will be able to say, it is well, it is well with my soul, only when we realize that it is our union with Christ that gives us strength. Only when we realize that it's God's presence that enables us to endure. Only when we realize that our Father is good and that He is using everything for our good and His glory can we suffer well. We need to remember in the midst of trials that our primary reflex should not be to ask, why did this happen? Now, our reflex should be to remember who God is. Remember who Jesus is. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? Jesus allows Lazarus to die for the glory of God. Verse 17, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. This is significant because typically when Jesus has healed, he's raised some people from the dead before, but it's happened really soon after death. And there was this Jewish belief that when somebody died, the, the soul or the spirit sort of hung out around the body for three days. But on the fourth day, uh, the, the spirit would depart and they were, they were really, really dead, right? So like Princess Bride, dead, dead. 
not just a little debt. And so the length of time is to highlight for us that Lazarus really is dead, dead. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them, console probably, yeah, to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give to you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. This exchange really is interesting. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And she, she takes that to mean in the general resurrection. Right? It's, it's sort of, the exchange is similar to if you've been to a funeral. I'm sorry for your loss. Well, thank you so much. That means so much to me. Right? That's, that's the sort of exchange that's going on. Just your normal, like regular social niceties. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what I mean says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. And he asks, do you believe this? What Jesus is doing is he's trying to take Martha's hopes and the general resurrection, and he's placing them firmly in himself. He's saying, don't put your hope and the resurrection down the line, generally, put your hope in me specifically. This really is interesting what Jesus promises in verses 25 and 26. He, he promises and says, those who believe in him have eternal resurrection life right now. For us believers, what, what that means is we have the Holy Spirit of God eternal life, living in us right now. So we said in our catechism question, irrevocably, forever. It also says, though he die, yet shall he live. We have eternal life right now, and, and when we die, we'll be absent from flesh, but we will be present with the Lord. And we will have life then. Oftentimes, Christians get confused. We think that uh, our salvation ends up in a Tom and Jerry sort of death. Cloud and, you know, harp. You know, sort of, or others will think like we become angels, right? The Bible doesn't say any of that. What, what happens to us is a resurrection. A bodily resurrection. So we have eternal life now, 
resurrection life now, and we will have it on into eternity. We will live, not in some disembodied state, but embodied, bodily, like Jesus. Have eternal life now, bodily resurrection then. He is the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? exchange with Martha, he then has a very similar response or exchange with Mary. Look at verse 28. When Martha said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when Mary heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, we've heard this before, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. This is really interesting in the rest of John's gospel when someone says, Come and see, it's to see a, a work of Jesus. Miracle. Remember early on, says, uh, Philip says to Nathaniel, I'm going to mess up the name, uh, but he says, come and see the man who told me everything I ever did. Later on in the gospel, you see they see and believe. And yet here we have a contrast. Life has not been given. The miraculous has not occurred. It is death. They say to Jesus, come and see. Also makes me think of later when we're told, come and see where they've laid him. Come and see death. And Jesus' response in verse 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But Some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Why does Jesus weep? I think there are two, two primary reasons. But, you know, if you're like me, you're going, well, why does he weep? Is it, I mean, he knows he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So part of me thinks, isn't this like, you know, if I'm, everybody's looking for one of my kids and I know that they're hiding behind the curtain, he's right there, he's fine. There's no need to be anxious. I don't think so. I, I think he weeps because he, and one of the reasons he weeps is he is mourning over the wages of sin. 
He is mourning over death and suffering. He is present in pain. We do not, Jesus is not aloof and unconcerned with our lives or our experiences. Indeed, he sympathizes with them. He is our sympathetic high priest. When we see Jesus here weeping, we can can recognize that he is present in our pain as a comforter. This is important. This is one of the reasons for the incarnation. You see, because God, in his godness, is impassable. He cannot suffer or experience pain. You cannot hurt God. You cannot kill him. This is why Jesus became one of us, right? So that he could become killable. God, the Son, is one person with two natures. They're without confusion or mixture. He's fully God, has the power of God, as we're about to see in a moment. He's fully human. We see him in the Gospels grow up, learn things, gets hungry and tired, thirsty. He weeps. And he dies. We see Jesus weeping here. We see his humanity and we realize this is my king. My king knows what it's like to suffer. And he's not only willing to suffer with me, he was willing to suffer for me on the cross. He is our great sympathetic high priest. He cries because he's present in our pain, because he's human, and his friend has died, and death stings. And it is a sting we will feel until Christ returns and brings glory turning earth into heaven. The second reason he cries is because he is angry. You see this this word deeply moved, it's there in verse 33 and appears again in verse 38. Deeply moved is a fine translation, but some of you probably have a little footnote that will say, uh, was indignant. Elsewhere it's translated as like snorted. The idea or the image is like a horse that's snorting in anger. I like how Tim Keller brings it across. says it quakes with rage. Quakes with rage. So Jesus is, I think, moved on two fronts here. I think he's moved to tears of sorrow as he sympathizes with pain, mourning over death, and he's moved in anger at death, at injustice, at sin, and sorrow. This is not the way it's supposed to be. I think sometimes we forget that death is unnatural. We start to sort of live like the world, as if death is just a normal part of life. But that's not what we believe. Christians believe that death is unnatural. It's not part of the world as God made it, but a consequence of sin. 
Therefore, we do not think that maturity is learning to accept death, but learning to trust the Christ who raises us out of it. Jesus hates sin and death. He's, he's deeply moved. Have you ever been so angry that you just are sort of shaking? Uh, sharing with a friend recently that, um, you know, before I got married and had children, I didn't think of myself as an angry person. But upon becoming a parent, I've realized that there, there is this level of rage that can well up within me. Uh, we, I titled it parental rage. He shared with me that I'm not the only one. So some of you who are like, I don't know what you're talking about. I think you're liars. But, but, but there is this rage that children can bring out of their parents. And, and I experienced it a little bit recently. We were on our way home from our trip, and a child who shall remain nameless uh, decided that, that he needed to use the, the restroom, in a public restroom. And I was there to attend to him as, as a parent would, right? Um, but he also decided that he didn't like that I was there. And so he dead bolted the door, right? You guys know how this looks. There's like space between the bottom of the door. And he dead bolted the door and then uh, went back and away from where, where I couldn't reach him and began to, to yell for his mother. Uh, and so uh, he, he's very, very loud. And it's, it's getting a little tense. And I'm going, oh my goodness, how am I going to handle it? I can't leave him here and go find his mother. I got to take care of this. And so finally... Uh, I get to the point, and I'm like so angry. I would like to tell you it was motivated by love, but it wasn't. I, I was so angry that I did the unthinkable, and, and I got down on my belly, and I, I crawled on the floor of this public restroom up under the other side to retrieve my child. And um, he, he's, he's still alive, um, but only because we, we were at a Chick-fil-A, and so I figured that was hollowed ground, you know, sacred space. My point is, if you've ever been really, really angry, it probably was unrighteously like I was, but that's sort of what, like Jesus is angry at death here. And he moves to do something about it. He means to end it. He is the resurrection and the life. Verse 38. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? You'll notice here, Martha, earlier, Jesus says, do you believe this? She says, yeah. You are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. But apparently, she thinks Jesus doesn't have the ability to do anything for Lazarus. She doesn't want to move the stone because it stinks, and perhaps she believes that he's, he's just seeking to weep over Lazarus' body. And there's an important note here. God's action in doing the miraculous is not dependent 
on your faith. There are a lot of false teachers out there who will tell you that if you are sick, it's because you haven't had enough faith in God to heal you. That is a lie from hell. God is not a prisoner of your belief. He is not like Tinkerbell, that he can only get going and get glowing and exist if you believe hard enough. No, he is God, the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. He does whatever he pleases. He's the one who works all things for your good and his glory. And even though Martha doesn't know enough to ask him for the miracle he is about to perform, he is about to give it to her. Not because she has great faith, but in spite of it. In spite of her lack of faith. Jesus says, Take the stone away. Verse 41. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Notice, Jesus has been praying and no one has been listening in. And this is what we know this because of what he says right here. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I have said this, I'm speaking out loud on account of the people standing around. Why would you do that, Jesus? So that they may believe that you have sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out. It really is extraordinary, sort of subtle how John says it. The man who had died came out. I was listening to another pastor preach this on my way home last night, and I, I giggled aloud when he said, you know, this really is amazing. He says, I, I shout to my children when they're awake, come to the table, uh, sit down, and they don't come. Jesus calls to a dead man, come out. And the dead man comes. Thousands of commentators have made the point that had Jesus not specified Lazarus by name when he called him out of the grave, that death would have given up every human being who had ever lived to the resurrection. Such is the power of Christ. Lazarus, come out, verse 44. The man who died came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is a picture of our salvation. We are dead in sin, under the wrath of God, no hope at all. And then, the word of God comes to our ears. The Spirit gives life to our hearts. That which was dead 
lives. Decaying dry bones are made to stand up. The point here isn't Lazarus. It's the one who raises him. It is the word of Jesus that gives Lazarus life. And it is the word of Jesus that gives us life. I love this. Unbind him and let him go. That's what Jesus, earlier he tells that that parable of uh, the strong man has a house. He said, well, how do you plunder the strong man? Well, you enter the house, you bind up the strong man, and then you can take his stuff. This is what Jesus has done to the evil one. He binds him, and then he takes you and I out of death's house, out of the darkness, and into the light. Unbind him and let him go. Also brings to my mind in Acts chapter 2, Peter is preaching. And he says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wondrous signs, that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the cords or pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus is able to unbind us, free us from death, because he himself has defeated death. He is the Holy One of God. And the grave cannot hold him or those who are united to him by faith. That's why really, though Lazarus gives us a a picture of our own salvation, it is a pale imitation of what is to come. Realize because Lazarus dies again. He's raised and he dies. We don't share in a resurrection like Lazarus. We share in a resurrection like Jesus. Raised to life forevermore. Never to die again. Glory is going to swallow up suffering once and for all. One pastor said, In Christ... Even the grimmest of sights and circumstances, death and the grave, are not able to finally disguise the goodness of God to all those who believe in Christ. Jesus will deliver all of God's children from all of our trials, even the last and greatest trial of death. And when he does, when eternity comes, when the king returns, we are going to look back over the horizon of our lives and we are going to say, God, you are right. You are good. You are holy. We're going to say like Job, who was I to question you? I should have just trusted your character. Really is similar to childbirth. I have, you know, many children now. We're, we're starting to lose count. Five, one on the way. And Early on, I, I used to ask, I mean, childbirth is not hard for me. Uh, you know, it, I just go to the hospital, hang out. Uh, I think my favorite birth, Owen was very, very quick. It was like two, three hours. I almost had to deliver him, but 
you know, the doctor got in there at the last second. I kind of wish that didn't happen now so I could take credit for it. But, but anyhow, uh, like most of the part leading up, I just ate Chipotle and, and watched football. It was great. Uh, like a UCLA-USC Thursday night game. You, know, you remember the important things about the birth of your children. Um, but I, I asked, asked this question because it was pretty hard for my wife. Childbirth, I hear, is rough. Why would you do this more than once? I mean, there is blood and yeah, it's just awful and pain. But after all the labor, all the, the nine months of carrying around another human being, of being hot and, and sweating to death all the time, and being hungry and being nauseous and all the rest. You get through the pain of delivery, through that suffering, and that baby is put into your hand, and you look at the face of your child, and you say, glory. That was worth it. The glory justifies the suffering. Friends, this is going to be exactly our experience when we get to the other side of our suffering and we look full in the face of Christ. We are going to say, glory, it was all worth it. This light momentary affliction is nothing compared to this weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. We are going to join with the cherubim singing before the Lord, holy, holy, holy. We will not question God. We will see our faith become sight. We will say, Jesus, indeed, you are the resurrection and the life. Oh, I pray, friends, that you would believe this. Do you believe this? One would think seeing a dead man called out of a grave would produce faith in all. But this is not the case. Look at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, that's Jesus, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? Because this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being a high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they, that's the religious leaders, made plans to put Jesus to death. Quick note on Caiaphas, it's interesting, he prophesies without knowing it, a little bit like Balaam's donkey. The Lord uses him despite himself. But the response here is, is many believe in Jesus, and yet others Go and tell the religious leaders in disbelief. Indeed, 
the high priest and other religious leaders, they recognize something many of us don't. They recognize that Jesus is a threat. That if Jesus really is the Son of God, that he, if he really is the King of Kings, then he has sovereignty over my life. See, they realize that you can't have Jesus and your old life. I mean, I think contemporary Christianity misses this. There are plenty of people uh, that are willing or have been willing in the past to walk an aisle one time after an emotional experience and say, yeah, I believe in Jesus. There are very few people who are willing to take up their cross and follow Christ daily. The latter offers a false sense of assurance. I'm sorry, the former, that's important. The former offers a false sense of assurance. Whereas the latter that is true discipleship. In our sins, when Jesus demands that we obey him, in our passions we respond, no. That is never going to happen. I will kill you before that happens. I rule my life. No one else. This is my journey. I'm going to live according to my truth, not yours. And if that's where you are, you have to understand that you're there because you are dead in your sins. I think sometimes non-Christians will think, you know, if there was enough evidence, I would believe in Jesus. Friends, there are mountains of evidence for the historicity of the Gospels and of the resurrection in particular. It's not an evidence issue. Well, if I could see the power of Jesus, see him raise someone from the dead like he does Lazarus, then I would believe. No, you wouldn't. This text stands in contrast to that. There are people there, see Lazarus raised from the dead, and their response is not to crown him King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but to crucify him. The religious leaders understand that he is a threat to their way of life, to their socioeconomic standing. His goals are different than their goals, and so they kill him. And this is what each and every one of us would do to Christ apart from a miracle of God. We, like they, would mean it for evil. And they did. They meant the cross for evil. But God meant it for good. For on the cross, when wicked men were driving nails through his hands, while he was crying out and blood was dripping down his face, and the sky was darkened, God was laying upon him the iniquity of all of his people. He was crushing the God-man, the perfect man, for the sins of all who would ever repent and believe in him. Friends, Jesus died for our sins. He, he took the curse that you and I deserve 
so that when we trust him, we can have the blessing that only he deserves. God meant the cross for good. Jesus died so we can be forgiven and he rose from the dead so we can be free from death. And so non-Christian, cultural Christian, believe this. Give your life to Christ. Turn from your sin and obey his voice rather than your passions. Ask God, Lord, by your word, do a miracle in me. Give me the new birth. His word gives life just as much today as it did on the day that Lazarus was called out of the grave. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him, though he die, yet shall he live. Do you believe this? I pray the answer is yes. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the gift of faith which comes to us as we hear your word proclaimed. We thank you that though we deserve death and hell, that you give to us life and heaven. We confess our sin, that we all too often are unwilling to trust your character, that all too often we demand answers for each and everything that happens in our world. Lord, this is a wrong response on our part. Pray that you would give us the faith to trust you even in the dark. That you would give us the faith to walk with you in the valley of the shadow of death where you have promised you're with us. Lord, we thank you that you are good. We love you. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.